Morning, friends. Um, you know, we, it's the summer, so lots of friends are, are traveling, and so we miss having them around. Um, but also the, the other bonus of, of summer is that because friends are traveling, we get to see some other friends who we don't normally see. So we've, we've, we've seen some friends from Florida, some friends coming in from Lebanon, uh, some friends from uh, D.C. Uh, and uh, I know, Lucas, you have to catch a bus. So if Lucas gets up in the, in the middle of the service, it's not because I said something to make him really mad. Um, okay, so we're, we're in the fourth part of our series this morning the things that shape us, and we're looking at those Christian disciplines that are practiced all over the world with every church you find, praying, reading the Bible, communion, baptism. Um, and so this morning we are on the fourth part and we're going to be looking at uh, the, the Bible. Um, and so I just want to start with this um, short reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. And the prophet says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Read your Bible. That's the kind of classic uh, Sunday morning uh, sermon application, you know, uh, whenever the pastor's not really sure. Uh, how do we apply all this? What should the application be for this Sunday morning? Uh, read your Bibles, a really good fallback and, and always, always great advice. Um, and so normally you, you wait till the end of the sermon and you go, okay, what's the application this morning? And, and we, we give the application. Then I'm starting with the beginning of the, the service, uh, giving the application. Thanks, Raf giving the application at the beginning of the service, and the application for this morning is read your Bible. So um, we can all go home now. That, that is that. Um, if you want to know how to read your Bible, you know you can buy those Bible in one year, or if you're a slow reader my, like me, the Bible in two years, and they give you a collection of, of you know, passages from the Old Testament and New Testament. You work your way through the Bible. Um, there's a, a proverb for every day of the month, so you could read through 31 uh, Proverbs, read through that uh, in a month. Um, if you read through the Psalms, there's 150 of those, so you can get through that in, in a, a year uh, and then some. Um, and, and of course, if you want, you could just begin at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and go all the way to the end of, uh, end of Revelation. That's always an option. What, what I find is that people tend not to need to be told what to do and how to do it, but what people usually lead, I mean, so for example, you know, if I, this, this is not breaking, you know, CNN always says breaking, everything's breaking news on CNN. I think I just heard they're going to drop that, that run, runner, right, <laughs> because everything's breaking news. But is this breaking, if you're a Jesus follower and a Christian, is this breaking news to you that you really ought to read your Bible? This is not breaking news, this is old news, okay? So most people don't need to be told what to do and how to do it. You already know what to do, and you know how to do it. But what we need is a vision, and, and we need to know what it is we think we're doing and why we're doing it, right? And so the moment we start to apply that question to, you know, why do we read, the, what do we think we're doing when we read the Bible? Why are we reading the Bible? Um, I, I think that that is a multi-layered, there's a multi-layered answer to those questions, Hopefully this morning we can look at a couple of those layers of that, that answer. Um, I, I've, I should start by saying I have had times when, and it's going back some, but I actually found the Bible to be boring and dry as sawdust. 
I did. This is, I've got to be honest here. I'm just gonna, and I'll tell you why that happened to me. And, and look, you, you may, you may um, have had your own experience of this by the laughter. I'm thinking, okay, maybe some of you had experiences before. And, and you may not for the same reasons. It may be different reasons. So here's personally what happened to me. For me, the Bible became dry as sawdust because it had been tamed. And one of, one of the ways that it had been tamed was that we, it, we had t- I turned the Bible into a system. You know, we've talked before about how sometimes people come across the Bible and they go, oh, this is a messy, disorganized system. And what needs to happen is we need to extract the truths, the, the, the theological propositions, uh, the doctrines, and we need to organize them into a beautiful system. And, and then we become enamored with the system, and it's amazing, actually, to see how this theological idea fits with this one, and this one hangs with this idea, and it all goes together. And it's quite a thing to, to see. But then the Bible ends up becoming this demoted, and it becomes this thing that supports my theological system. It's, it's this thing that's there to, as, as a sort of a proof text for the system. And every time I open the Bible and read it, I'm reading it through the lens of this system. But here's the problem. You can master a system, and you can know it inside out. And when you've mastered something, it's a bit, a little bit if we treat it like a system or, or an instruction manual, then what ends up happening is what, what do you do with the instruction manual after you've mastered the, how to use the gadget? You, 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 you stick it in the junk drawer, right? And, it, and, and then maybe pull it out when, now and then. So, so you, don't, you become bored, right? You become bored with the system. And so I became bored with the Bible and bored with theology. And that is not a good place for a pastor of a church to be, right? <laughs> that's, that's not a good place. So, uh, but that's where I found myself. So that is one, uh, one particular approach to the Bible. At the other extreme end, there is, I suppose, what I call the approach to the Bible, I call sort of the Bible roulette, right? And Bible roulette is basically when, and I've seen, I've, I know people who more or less do some version of this, right? And, and, and wherever it lands, that's, that's what God is saying to me today. And so, so it's a little bit like uh, a magic eight ball, right? You shake the magic eight ball and, and, or a fortune cookie, love is in the air, or, or uh, outlook good, right? Outlook promising. Uh, and and the, tr- the trouble is, of course, just, just like uh, Russian roulette, maybe not quite just like, but so, there, there, is a, there is a danger to, to Bible roulette as well. So, you know, you, 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 you do this and you, you land on Deuteronomy 28.28. Come on, you all know what that says, right? The Lord shall smite thee with madness, is, is what it is. It's not anyone's life verse here, your, your, your <laughs> memory verse. The Lord shall smite thee with madness. And, and so, and yet, and yet, and yet we say, Christians say, God is going to speak to us through the Bible. Uh, that is what the church says about the Bible, and that is what the Bible says about the Bible, uh, that it communicates everything that God wants to tell us. But pick up the Bible, open it at random, and you're unlikely to get a message, a set of instructions, in a straightforward way, written directly to you. Um, But then again, it's not a dead and closed and tidy system. And so hopefully we can see that between these two extremes, the Bible is instruction manual system and the Bible as this uh, Bible roulette, right? Uh, Between those, we can see that the claim that God speaks to us through the Bible has always been a slightly complicated claim to make. We need to reflect a little bit on what the Bible is. Because when you do open the Bible, you may happen to land in, what, a psalm, 
What is a psalm? It's a form of human address to God. Sometimes they're shouting to God in anger. Sometimes they're crying out to God in pain. Sometimes they're singing to God in joy. The full range of emotions are right there in the psalms. You may land in an interesting tract of Israel's history, or you may find yourself in one of those very long and um, famously difficult genealogies, and you might wonder, what is God trying to say to me through so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so? Um, you might be confronted by the arresting and piercing word of Jesus to one of his disciples, or you might find yourself in one of the long, complicated arguments of the Apostle Paul. Reflecting on this strange collection of writings that makes up the Bible, Rome Williams says, the diversity of the Bible is as great as if you had within the same two covers, for example, Shakespeare's sonnets, the law reports of 1910, the introduction to Kant's critique of pure reason, the letters of St. Anselm, and a fragment of the Canterbury Tales, all within the same two covers. And remember that the chronological span of the books of the Bible is even longer than the examples I've just given. So what, what have you got there? You, you've got plays, you've, you've got law, legal documents, you've got enlightenment philosophy, you've got medieval philosophy, you've got you know, um, stories, literature. And so he says, when you turn the page of the Bible, just as you, as you think you know what this is, you turn the page and it becomes something else. It becomes something else. So how should we, how can we approach this book? If we zoom in for a moment to Jesus in the Gospels and we just focus on his, the way he goes about teaching, he doesn't just give a list of commands and instructions, a bunch of mandates, but he tells a bunch of stories. And, and he tells these, these very pungent and, and um, dramatic little narratives. And they're the sort of stories we're meant to sit with and they have to do their work and, they have to, and we have to sort of engage with the characters and look at the interactions between them. And then you have to ask, where am, I, where am I now? Because you're not where you were when the story began. And often the parables, with the parables, the question that Jesus leaves us with is, who are you? Who are you in this story? So Jesus attempts to draw us through his parables into a particular narrative world. To draw us, the listeners, into a story about God and the people who respond to him. So, if we look out, if we zoom out, right, from the parables and just look at the Bible as a whole, perhaps we might say that, that God is telling us a parable or a story or rather a whole series of stories. And he's saying, look, this is how, I, who, how people have understood me. This is how people have seen me. This is how people have heard me. And, and this is how they responded. This is the gift I gave. And this is, um, this, this is the way, this is their response they made. And then the question, again, where are you in this? At first, it might be really difficult. So if we, with this idea of immersing ourselves in this narrative world and being drawn into it, that might actually be a little bit difficult to do. Um, again, it's, it's the morning of Ryan Williams this morning. You know, he's quoting him up, I'm quoting him. So here we go again, another Ryan Williams quote. Um, and, and he says this, he says that perhaps one day, in whatever sense God wishes us to do, we may meet the remote figure who stands behind the sagas about Abraham. But I think it would be a bit of a shock. It would be a little like meeting a long-lost cousin from a very distant country with a very different culture and language, but it would be even harder than meeting your second cousin from some other country. This is your millionth cousin from prehistoric Mesopotamia, and, you've, and your first thought would almost certainly be that you have no idea how to relate to him. 
Yet the Bible says this man is your family, and his story is the beginning of your story. And if it were not for him, you, are, you would not be who you are now. And so I think part of reading these stories is about letting the Spirit of God bring us inside that story so that you can recognize it as your story. And suddenly these bizarre and exotic figures from the ancient Near East look you in the eye and you recognize your own reflection. There's a family resemblance. And so reading the Bible is about, I think, building those kinds of analogies between then and now, between us and them, between the past and the present, and recognizing in that our story. And so developing and maturing and reading the Bible involves coming to recognize patterns in the Bible of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And so we look to Jesus, and this drives us back to Jesus, because we look to Jesus and we see him as the ultimate faithful response to God. And through thinking, meditating on Jesus, we then read the rest of the Bible and we learn to discern this is a faithful response, this is an unfaithful response. So to summarize, the Bible is a collection of stories where we are being brought inside of, we're being brought into a particular narrative world, and we're meant to recognize ourselves in the story. And we have to discern what is a faithful or an unfaithful response. And this drives us back to Jesus, the completely faithful one. And in light of him, we learn to recognize the, what it looks like to be faithful to God. And what is the result of all this? Well, now I want to borrow from N.T. Wright. And uh, he, he gives us this analogy. And I find this, this has really helped me think about what does it mean for the Bible to have authority? You know, sometimes people say, it's a book without any errors in it. Well, there's plenty of books without any errors in it if you've got a good editor, right? That, that, so that, I'm not sure that that's what gives it authority. So what does it mean for the Bible to have authority in our lives? So N.T. Wright says this, he says, suppose there exists a Shakespeare play whose fifth act had been lost. The first four acts provide such a wealth of characterization, such a crescendo of excitement within the plot that it is generally agreed that the play ought to be staged. Nevertheless, it's felt that it's inappropriate to write the fifth act once and for all. It would freeze the play into one form and commit Shakespeare, as it were, to being prospectively responsible for work not in fact his own. Better, it might be felt, to give the key parts to highly trained, sensitive, and experienced Shakespearean actors who would immerse themselves in the first four acts and in the language and culture of Shakespeare and his time and who would then be told told to work out a fifth act for themselves. So consider the result. The first four acts existing as they did would be the undoubted authority for the task at hand. That is, anyone could probably object, probably object to the new improvisation on the grounds that this or that character was now behaving inconsistently or this or that subplot or theme had not reached its proper resolution. This authority of the first four acts would not consist in an implicit command that the actor should repeat the earlier parts of the play over and over again in a wooden manner. It would consist in the fact of an as yet unfinished drama, which contained its own impetus, its own forward movement, which demanded to be concluded in the proper manner, but which required of the actors a responsible entering into the story as it stood in order first to understand how the threads could appropriately be drawn together and then to put that understanding into effect by speaking and acting with both innovation and consistency. So there's this possibility of understanding the authority of the Bible this way. Um, 
Act one, we could think of as creation. Act two, the fall. Act three, Israel. Act four, Jesus. Act five, well, the New Testament form the first scene in the fifth act, giving hints as well of how the play is supposed to end. And so the church lives under the authority of the extant story, being required to offer something between an improvisation of an actual performance and a final act. And for me, this has become this really helpful way of understanding how the Bible might have authority in our lives. We will let ourselves get drawn into that, that story. Um, you know, uh, I just recently, and I'll, I'll wrap up here, that just recently I, I defended my uh, thesis. You know, you know that, you all know this. And, and a few people have said, were you really nervous before that? And, and I can honestly say that because I was so jet-lagged, I'd had six nights without any sleep. I, for some reason, it just got, the older I get, the worse jet lag gets. And, and so I had no sleep, and I, I was just like, I woke up, and I was just too, I was too tired to be nervous, and so I just walked in. And it, it, it's gonna be, it is what it is. It's going to be what, what happens. Um, but, but I had done some preparation before that. I thought that might be smart. And so my, my game plan was I was going to, to, to sort of memorize some responses to uh, some questions I thought they might possibly ask. And then I was going to try and memorize about 10, 15 minutes for every one of Nietzsche's books so that I could talk about those as well. And I, and I knew they weren't going to ask me the exact questions that I prepared for, but I figured between that stuff, by immersing myself there, there could be on the fly some spontaneity where I could cut and paste and take some out of these and some out of that and piece it together. And, and that's what happened. Thankfully, they asked the right questions, right? <laughs> it worked, but that's, that's what happened. And, and so it, it's kind of like that. If we can immerse ourselves in this story, if it can have that kind of authority for us, it, it'll be great. We won't just be answering questions in a viber, but what will happen is we will become spontaneously kind and, and we will become automatically generous and we'll be naturally hospitable and, and we will be loving and we will be reconcilers and this stuff will come as second nature to us. And that is why... I suggest you read your Bible. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, bring us into this story. Bring us into this story in a way that we've not experienced it before. May the story grip us. May the story shape us. May it have authority in our lives, not because it's a book without errors, but because it is the living Word of God. You speak through Scripture to us. May this story have the authority in our lives so that we become those generous, hospitable, kind, loving, self-sacrificial, generous people that your people are called to be. In Jesus' name, amen.